Hi, I'm Kess Otterleaf, and welcome to Margins and Murmurations, the podcast. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it with your friends. As I don't have social media, this is the best way for people to find out about me. And if you'd like to know more about my work, you can check out otterleaf.com. Otter, like the animal, leaf, L-I-E-F-F-E. And you can support this podcast at patreon.com slash otterleaf. In my second novel, Conserve and Control, I imagined a futuristic museum with exhibits on queer ecology. Three years later, I found out that our queer animal zine was being featured in just such an exhibit in Switzerland. During a beautiful and noisy queer festival, I met up with Joe, who teaches at the exhibit to talk all things queer ecology. We also explored species loneliness, colonialism, and finding connection. Joe is a queer POC person currently living and studying in Basel, Switzerland. They've worked in different exhibitions in Switzerland, one of which is the Queer Ecology Exhibition in the Natural History Museum in Bern, where they give workshops to kids and teens. Gently floating down the Rhine or having a joyful dinner with friends and loved ones is Joe's ideal way to pass time. And so here we are in some deserted corner of the water fabric where I'm not sure we're allowed to be, but here we are. Um, and yeah, tell us something about queer ecology. Yeah, well, I basically, I started doing uh, workshops in museums first and um, a friend of mine worked on the queer ecology workshop for the uh, museum in Bern mm -hmm. and it kind of asked if I would be interested in helping as well. And um, that's, well, I don't think it's the first, first time that I've heard of like the idea of queer ecology, but it's the first time that I really got into like the basics of it, I would say. Mm. Um, there was this famous Suki song. I don't know if you know mm. it. Queer it queer yes. yes. That's, of course, I knew. Mm -hmm. And I had some basic ideas of like, well, animals obviously are not like monogamous or um, heterosexual or anything. Um, and then in like as a preparation to start doing the workshops, I went to the museum and I saw your scene as well, <laughs> um, and among other things. And that's the first time I really like, um, kind of educated myself a little bit more or more in depth. Um, and yeah, I was really, I think at, at at some points in my life, I've, I've watched a lot of nature documentaries, mm, like right. all the planet Earth and I don't know what. And it really st struck me that to tell a compelling story, they would like really personify the animals, mm. but in a way that is so normative, um, which is really funny if you think about like animal behavior or how plants behave and then put that in terms of like, oh, now the mama is going to do this or that. Um, and I think some of that I've all, I had already an idea that this could not be true, right? right. But um, with the museum exhibition, I was like, oh, okay. Like there's a lot, lot of variety within the animal kingdom as well as um, with plants, but more so the exhibition is focused on animals, right? Yes. And then I started doing the workshops, and it's really interesting how the kids will intuitively um, get the idea of animals being all kinds of queer, bi, whatever, like trans, whatever you want to call it. Um, and it really helps them make the connection from like, oh, 
yeah, there there's like I don't know diversity among all animal species mm. as well as humans, mm. um, and I think particularly with younger teens or kids, it's really a useful way of framing it because they're so excited by animals, right? So uh, yeah. if you say who has watched Finding Nemo? They're all like, oh, yes, I have one. Can I tell you about this thing? And you're like, yes. So if it would be biologically accurate, um, then actually the father would become the mother with over at the course of a year, I think. Yeah, that that is my connection to queer ecology, mm. I would say. What kind of questions do they ask you? I mean, in the beginning, it's really interesting because we start by going to the exhibition and then usually um, we task them with um, finding one interesting fact or something that interests them in the exhibition and mm. bring back to the workshop. And with especially with younger kids, it's always animal-based. Like older kids or teens will say like, oh, I learned what asexual is or something, but Young kids are, are always like, I saw a snail, I saw a komodowaran, um, oh yeah. And they have, in the beginning, before the workshop starts, that's what I find really interesting. Sometimes they ask me if we are going to get to know a queer animal. Like, mm, okay. And then I ask back, like, yeah, what, what do you think? Do you think that there is one queer animal? <laughs> and they're like, yeah, I think I know something about penguins or something. They're gay, right? <laughs> and you're like, yeah, I mean, so the penguins, penguins. Yeah. <laughs> the famous gay penguins, <laughs> always having their pride parade. No. Um, so that's basically what, what gets them into the workshop, like seeing that these animals that they, because I think a lot of kids relate to animals in quite a deep sense, right? Mm -hmm. They have a favorite animal, they think some animals are really stupid, others are really interesting, and they just want to know everything about their favorite animal. I think animal. I'm still at that stage. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> right? But I think it's like you get this encourage to really, I don't know, relate to an animal mm -hmm. when you get older. It's like weird yeah. in normative society, mm -hmm. but the kids are still really within that headspace. So then when you switch to like, okay, but what does that mean for humans? Or um, how can we look at gender within humans? Mm. Then you get the questions of like, oh, but can you really like, because they don't know the vocabulary, right? They say something like, can you really um, change sexes? Or can you change gender? And you're like, well, we saw with animals that that is totally within the realm of possibilities. Mm. and. Why should it be different with humans? And there the questions are much more like, they can be very personal because sometimes I add myself to the class and like I'm non-binary and then they ask about my pronouns or if it was difficult to come out and stuff like that. Mm, okay. um, and sometimes it's more general. And I think what is really interesting is that they quite quickly um, sometimes catch on to certain normative forces within their lives. So oftentimes, when they experience something, that will be the topic, like, for example, girls that are told that their skirts are too short, they will bring that in and connect that to gender right. and normativity. Wow. Mm. Um, so sometimes you then really get far away from animals in some sense, but it's always about normativity, right? Mm. And I think... I love that they're making those connections. Yeah, it's really... I mean, in a way, it's really interesting how fast it can go. Mm. And then with other classes it's really sometimes very difficult to get them to acknowledge that there is 
like some negative aspects in normative gender expectations, um, but I think it's really also a defense mechanism. Okay. Um, and I think it's really about showing them that there are all the questions are open to them, like they can ask me anything. And I've noticed that, like with talking with teens, especially if you show them you're vulnerable, they will really react to that in a way that I didn't expect. I was like told like, oh, teens, they can be so mean. And if I say, oh, that really hurts my feeling, how you ask that or that you didn't listen while I was talking or something, they will be like, oh, wow, this authority figure, because that's what they perceive me as, um, is saying something that I don't expect because I doubt that their teacher is like, oh, that hurts my feelings, right? Right. So I think it's also about approaching them with a lot of openness and softness in a way. Um, and yeah, I think it helps them get their guards down to talk about animals and like yeah. cute dolphins right. that are, yeah, I don't know. Um, yeah, but in a way, what I was, what was thinking about is maybe also how that emotionality can still be very important, like the emotionality that they feel towards animals, mm. that maybe that brings them into a headspace where mm. it's easier for them to talk about other things. Mm. Yeah, I feel like it's a different entry point. Mm. It's so interesting that they're making the connection to their own lives and, and mm. things maybe even beyond the, the subject, but like connecting it to normativity and things like this. It feels like a way in. It's an access point for them to be talking about those things and it's a little bit abstract because we're not gay penguins <laughs> but then we like them and so we can talk about this thing that's a little bit outside of our experience maybe and then we're like connecting it to things that are in our experience and then you're there like also connecting it to your experience mm -hmm. and, and connecting with the kids and I feel like there's something in there that just opens this very rich conversation that if you're like let's have a workshop about sexuality and gender it might be a bit more too much pressure or something mm -hmm. for some people because I imagine some of these kids are queer as well and they're like yeah. okay great I found a way to talk about this that's a little bit not about me and it's not too personal and not too vulnerable but also it's really resonating and I'm seeing myself in this picture somehow yeah and I think that's where I noticed that like getting knowledge out about queer culture is very important because I will notice some kids that are like they know every animal in the exhibition already and they also know why they could be in a queer exhibition so mm -hmm. they will be like oh yes I know why Nemo like is actually trans or right. whatever mm -hmm. um, and I think that like that's just another way to relate like if your parents read you about animals that are queer mm -hmm. right and you see yourselves in them that's so important and it's a way to like not directly yeah like directly saying I'm queer myself mm -hmm. but like these animals are so I'm seeing some mm -hmm. um, experiences reflected in that and that's also like why I think the terms are useful to use like okay. saying Nemo is trans or mm -hmm saying, I don't know, um, that the albatrosse are like lesbians sometimes. Um, and on the other hand, I always kind of put a special just emphasis on the fact that these are words that we created mm. because they have a lot of questions about labels, like mm. how do you choose a label or how do you, I don't know, can you change labels? And you're like, yeah, of course, you can do whatever you want with those labels because we invented them. Um, and 
that I think also helps them to understand like, okay, labels are our own invention. So in a way we are free to use them as we want. And it's not about learning the labels. They, I, I don't expect them to go out of the workshop and be like, I know what pansexual is. I know what asexual is. I don't know. Um, I expect them to kind of know that there is a diversity of human experiences and that they can use those labels if they want, they don't have to. And if they're really confused about the labels, they can just ask people. Mm. And I think it's so much just about asking and within that also in like admitting that you don't know things like, right. because that's what I feel like a lot of teens, especially they cannot tell you like, I don't know what queer is. You have to turn it around and be like, so, if I don't know what queer is, how would you explain it? And okay. then they start like gathering all these facts and knowledges and yeah, that's really cute. And then also with the animals, they can make easier connections, mm -hmm. right? So they, yeah, kind of gauge that um, more rapidly. And also it's a fun way to, like if you want to talk about anything sexual, it's easier to do that with animals than with right. humans. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, that's so interesting that if you're like, you start, kind of like telling them, oh yeah, that this is how, or dolphins have sex for pleasure as well, I don't mm -hmm. know, then it's easier to talk about sex and sexuality in general. Yeah. That, that it's also interesting, yeah. Makes a lot of sense. I feel like that is what's also happening on the other side when people learn about get their sex education from a BBC documentary, mm -hmm. And they're like, this is what sex is for. It's for making baby tigers or something. And that's a different story mm -hmm. that's being told in a very specific way. It's like, this is what sex is for. This is how it works. And this is why you do it, mm -hmm. which looks remarkably like a sex education um, or a mainstream sex education um, workshop or something. And so it's, it's like a different story that mm -hmm. also has different results. Mm -hmm. Storytelling is an interesting point because the, every exhibition tells a story, right? And the one in Bern is divided into the animal and the human section, which is one thing I would really ch want to change because it's useful for relating to different things. Like you can tell kids, look, animals are queer as well, so it shouldn't be weird or abnormal with humans. But at the same time, it really leaves this binary open, like humans and animals and nature and society, basically. Mm. And I think what I would have liked to see is really like also, because in the human side, they focus strongly on the like societal, which is okay, I think. But at the same time, it's also like, you don't look at the societal part with animals. You don't right. talk about how they live in communities or mm -hmm. like what you were talking about with the, um, what, if I remember correctly, with the vampire bats right. that live in communities mm -hmm. and do mutual aid. Mm -hmm. Like you can find aspects of community in animals as well as the biological aspects, which are obviously there in humans as well. And I think that would have gotten to a deeper level even like, mm -hmm. What do we, how do we want to relate to the world as humans right. and how do we relate to animals and how do we relate to queer animals specifically and how is it that queerness was something that was for a long time like kept secret mm. even though it was observed in animals mm. from like hundreds of years ago, right? 
Um, and how does that mirror our societal treatment of queerness, right? Because there's a reason that we need to call these animals queer or lesbian or trans or gay, because that's they were treated in a similar way right. than humans, right? Mm-hmm. We're humans, obviously. Um, so that's one thing, like, you can really not see that in the exhibition. They don't explain why it's like empowering or important to call animals queer and why it's not only about saying, okay, these are normal animals, then queers are also normal because that's not what I want the exhibition to be about. I want it to be about the like just immense diversity among like human experiences, animal experience, how we relate to them, how we can build communities even though we are all of us are so different, right? With animals included. And I think that is something that, like if that exhibition would ever exist, I would love to do a workshop there, let's say like that. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, what else does the ideal exhibition have in it? I also feel like you were talking about the separation of plants and animals in the mm-hmm. exhibition and actually quite a fundamental part of queerness and queer ecology is like complexity and interconnection. Mm-hmm. So like dividing these like different sections of it already feels a bit weird to like not be making all those yeah. connections. Uh, so what else? Like you're designing your ideal exhibition on queer ecology mm-hmm. and what, what else would you have in it? I mean, I think I would also have a lot of more influences from, for example, I mean, they had community influences like from the queer community, but I would much more also work with other marginalized groups mm. like um, imprisoned people or people of color mm. and draw those similarities out as well. Um, and I think, like, for example, mutual aid is so, such an important, like, like, it's always said, oh, yeah, we can't give out too much free food or money. I don't know. Then people will get lazy, whatever. And if you have parallels in the animal kingdom, like, yeah, mutual aid is something that some animal species choose to do. And that is a viable option. Mm -hmm. Like, maybe that would help us. I think, like, seeing animals, plants, nature in general as a starting point for what can we do better instead of just like exhibit them exhibit them them mm-hmm. and be like, yeah, here's a bat, here's a dolphin, here's a I don't know, a bonobo or something. Um but rather reflect upon our mm-hmm. experience. And in that sense, I mean I always love exhibitions to be interactive. Right. And that's something that they really try to do and I see that the resources are always limited and if people go to an exhibition, they expect to be there, I don't know, maybe one, two hours and then go home, right? So maybe you would have to approach it wholly different. Like maybe you say this is not an exhibition as much as it is an experience where we expect you to kind of partake, of course, in whatever way you're comfortable with, but that you really have to kind of grapple with the questions of like, what can we learn from animals, from plants? Mm. What, what? What does it reflect? How does it reflect upon us as a society that, yeah, we don't really have mutual aid programs that are state sanctioned, I'll say. Yeah, I think that would be an ideal exhibition for me, like more interactive and more really reflective on how we can learn from from nature Mm. in general. 
Yeah, yeah. and sign me up. I'm there. It sounds amazing. <laughs> I'm all over it. <laughs> we can do it next <laughs> yes, year. Okay, we have great. some free time. <laughs> Um, I can imagine that recognition must be a big part there as well of like where this information comes from, like how it's sourced, like, yeah, from communities. I imagine also, um, I just feel like it's an important thing also, like with the work that I'm doing on queer ecology, just like a recognition that this wasn't just invented in Europe or Switzerland or somewhere Mm -hmm. yesterday. And this is just like ancient indigenous knowledge as well. And like, and yeah, I can imagine it's quite easy for um people to kind of co-opt information or to like take it from their communities that are affected and then kind of turn it into like a commercial product and stuff so this is what not what we would do in our perfect exhibition that we're going to design together <laughs> after this podcast um i feel like that's an important element as well yeah yeah totally i think i think especially with plants so i'm for example half mexican and i know that there was a lot of knowledge among indigenous communities in mexico about all these plants and their abilities to heal to help people and that's something that well it's not been totally extinct uh, the knowledge about it but it has been so much more difficult to put that out there because Mm. of the colonialist system that was imposed and like the genocide of indigenous people and i think stuff like that is like if you focus on that as well like what knowledge has been extinct by us how can we get it back how can Mm. we commute as a community work together to bring that knowledge back um, I mean, that would be really great within an exhibition. Right. And as well, it's a way to relate to plants and the world around us, basically, that is no longer here and that a lot of people mm-hmm. feel this this pain about mm-hmm. and cannot, or I can only talk for myself, I mean, I feel a lot of pain about not being able to access that in a way that I could have if, if, if it weren't for colonialism, basically. Yeah. And I think it's something that really always makes me very sad to know Mm. that like these plants all around me I cannot relate to them basically Mm. and I crave some kind of connection to them Mm. but all I know is that they're beautiful or that they make me really happy but I don't really know a lot more about that and I think also in Switzerland there are a lot of herbs and stuff that was used right so it wouldn't even be like you don't have to go far, far, basically, to find these connections, which mm. are so important. Mm. And, yeah, also a way to create queer or indigenous or, um, yeah, people of color communities, right? 100%. Mm. How do you personally, because that pain and that craving and lack, uh, yeah, really sits very strongly with me. Um, how do you personally deal with that? Do you find ways to find those connections, find that those moments yeah I think it's interesting I I think for a long time I just pushed it down basically Mm. and it's especially interesting because my mother she moved from Mexico City this huge huge city to the countryside in Switzerland and then she had a child which was me and she like she needs nature and like since she was a child she knew I don't want to live in the city I want to go to the countryside and she did, and now, I mean, she goes to swimming in the lakes all year round. She basically lives in the forest sometimes. Wow. They have a huge garden. Mm. And I think for a part of me couldn't accept that. Like, I was the exact opposite. I grew up in the countryside, so I was like, I need to be in the city because as a queer person, there was a lot of 
yeah, hurtful things that happened in the countryside, which I couldn't bear anymore, basically. And so it's only been recently that I am starting to really allow myself to have, let's say, more a spiritual connection to nature rather than just being like, yeah, I need to go outside a bit, but really like getting in the water and feeling that energy that the water mm. has and just letting myself go totally mm. sink into the water, really. Mm. Um, or exa- for example, like just staring at a weeping willow for five minutes and mm. being like, wow, this is like magical Um, so I think I'm starting to kind of yeah re refocus my my energy around nature and how I relate to plants and animals but it's it's been a long way because of different yeah forces in my life or in general like also like usually people are like don't stand there for five minutes when you're on a walk just right. yeah continue walking mm-hmm. right mm. and i think allowing myself to have these moments of like just looking at a buck or a tree or yeah. the water for a few minutes that is already so helpful mm. yeah giving yourself the permission yeah mm-hmm. yes <laughs> um any kind of takeaway message that you wish people knew about queer ecology listening to a (laughs) podcast they're like hmm this is interesting what's the thing you want them to like take away yeah like just if you if you start wondering about something like really just google it but then go further than googling it Mm. because that's where the interesting information starts appearing right so if you're thinking like oh why is this animal behaving in this way Google will tell you something and then the further in you go, the more interesting it gets, right? And also like always the questions that pop up in your head are probably like a whole month's worth of research because, for example, we were wondering like how is gender even defined because then some mushrooms can have like, I don't know, 20,000 different genders and it's so interesting that it's such a basic definition Mm. and then we we gave them this definition. So it means like, we did that, that they have 20,000 genders, right? right? And at the same time, we're like, no, there can only be two genders. So I think it's a nice place, queer ecology, to start seeing all these things that make absolutely no sense about our normative expectations. And also the stories that we are told as children by, I don't know, nature documentaries, as well as teachers or adults in our lives. Um, and I think it's also such a joyful way to unlearn those things because it's just like, oh my god, this animal I really liked as a kid actually have, I don't know, it's gay, it's lesbian, I don't know. And I think that is really a joyful way to unlearn some of the structures and kind of also practice a little bit of escapism sometimes, right? Because it's like, wow, this queer world exists out there and even though our world is so focused on being like normative, good citizens in capitalism. Um, we could someday get back to that world where, yeah, queerness is just allowed to exist and flourish and be the magnific- magnificent thing it is. 